0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Elizabeth Horge Freeman, who is the author of the book Second Class Daughters, Black Brazilian Women, and Informal Adoption as Modern Slavery, published by Cambridge University Press. I'm happy to welcome my fellow Cornelian, Dr. Horge Freeman, to the podcast today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about your book. And I wanted to just start with a question we normally begin with about your background and um, how you came to the project. And so the book you know, looks at the lives of informally adopted daughters in Brazil. And so I wondered um, how how you came to write the book and if you could just share with us about anything about, like, you, like I said, your background and what sparked your interest in the topic. Sure, sure.
1: Well, in terms of what led me to write the book. The the trajectory of writing this book is an interesting one because it started when I was collecting data for my first book, The Color of Love, Racial Feature Stigma and Socialization in Black Brazilian Families. And what I mean by that is, while I was in Brazil, excuse me, in Salvador, collecting data on Black families and looking at how families treat their children differently often, based on their racial features, I ended up meeting throughout my time, uh, women who were in these semi-slave situations. So because I was collecting data with Black um, families in in working class neighborhoods, I actually lived in some of the most elite neighborhoods in, in Salvador. So I would study one place, but go back to these other neighborhoods. And in these in these um, um, exclusive communities, I would constantly see women and start striking up conversations with these Black women who lived in these exclusive homes. And it was then that I discovered um, the first example of an informally adopted woman who, who, who whose pseudonym is, is Nadia. When I saw Nadia sleeping on the floor of a teenage boy's bedroom, I thought, what in the world is this? Why is this woman on the floor? How is it possible that she's called a family member yet? She's not treated in that way. And so that first example really sparked my interest in continuing to collect narratives. Uh, And I should say that even after I met Nadia, I was still working on a different project. And so while I was in Brazil for a year working on The Color of Love, I continued to meet at least a dozen other women who were filhas de crescer, informally adopted women who had, who had lived or were currently still living in the homes of wealthier families that had adopted them. I'm using air quotes here, adopted them or taking them in under the guise of family only to exploit them for free domestic labor. So that's, that's the route of of finding the women who are in this study. But my broader trajectory which I think you're also asking about, is one that's rooted in sociology. So I'm actually a sociologist by training. So it's, it's really great that I, I get to be on this uh, podcast. And I'm, I'm a sociologist who looks a lot like an anthropologist. In fact, I was trained in part by Carol Stacks in terms of qualitative sociology, um, in, ter- in terms of my qualitative work while I was at Duke University. Um, and so in many ways, anthropological sensibilities can, can readily be seen in my approach to research and the types of questions that I ask and the focus that I, I tend to put on reflexivity. Uh, so the field of sociology brought me to these topics, my interest in understanding how systems of domination that include racism, sexism, um, classism, all collide to create um. Uh, th- these unique experiences for Black women really allowed me to come to this point to see these women who I was meeting in Salvador as uh, worthy of being of, of, of understanding and understanding on their terms. So that, I, I think that, that that provides a general overview of the topic. M- maybe the last thing I'll say is this. Whereas I had initially started with my first book, again, The Color of Love, focusing largely just on the realm of family, this book, The Second Class Daughters, also delves into dynamics, ways that uh, families are um, can can be situated to, both, to perpetuate inequality. But I think the difference about this book is also this important labor element. I've always been interested in labor exploitation. In fact, my interest in the, the transatlantic slave trade was connected to my interest in labor exploitation. So in many ways, second class daughters... Uh, represents the culmination of all of my academic and intellectual interests, um, and it allows me to really grapple with some of the what Patricia Hill Collins calls this matrix of domination that Black women, in particular, find themselves in.
2: Yeah, thank you for that answer. And also speaking of, I guess, other qualitative um, anthropologists slash sociologists. Um, I learned about informally adopted daughters or criadas from France, when dance twine and her book, racism and a racial democracy. And I wondered if that was the first time I encountered them. And then I kind of have not really seen them again, at least in English uh, written, you know, research in Brazil. And I wondered um, your book, of course, explores the lives of informally adopted daughters. And I wondered if you could tell us about Criação or this informal adoption in Brazil, because I think it would be unfamiliar to many listening. And so how does one enter into this informal adoption? Why would parents give up their daughters to another family? And you know, their lives really seem to be marked by like heavy labor um, at, for, for their adoptive families. Um, what could could you say, like kind of generally about their about their lives as well?
1: Let me start by saying that France Windance Twine has always been um, a trailblazer and a model for me. And in fact, uh, she was also her book was the first time that I had read about criadas. And in fact, in her book, she has a picture of a young. Black girl who's a criada, and literally that picture has always stayed with me. And I, and even when I didn't realize it, has I feel as though in some ways my research trajectory has has been following that image of that young black girl. Even when I think about the color of love, um, it was it was that image that that drove my research. And and Wind Dance has just been such a fantastic mentor. And I know that that that's less connected to this book, but I think it's so important. To recognize the other women, the other Black women in the field who are helping uh, bring others into this conversation. So her her book was the first time that I I, I learned about criadas and filhas de criação. For those of for, for your listeners who may not be as as familiar with um, the practice, criação was essentially. A practice that exists all over Latin America, quite frankly, where poor families, often uh, disproportionately indigenous and black, will send their children to live in the homes of wealthier families, often with the promise of care. So because there's such a high level of precarity in Brazil and in other countries in Latin America, we see families really grappling to, to ensure their children's survival at, at any means, at any means necessary, any means necessary. And so, what that ends up meaning is that when opportunities arise, when wealthy families sometimes approach um, socioeconomically disadvantaged or impoverished families, they're they're believing that these families actually have the the the, the well being of their children in mind. And so they're willing to give them away because of the promise that their children's future might be, might be assured that their, their child might actually survive. And so in some cases, there's a question of having a better future and other cases, families are giving their children, their daughters in particular, away because they fear that if they don't do that, they'll die of starvation. And we saw that um, with the example of Katia in, in, and second-class daughters. I should also mention, though, that Criação is absolutely connected to Brazil's history of slavery, of racialized chattel slavery. So the tradition of seeing Black women's bodies and Black girls' bodies as being exploitable, being disposable, those ideas certainly inform the, the, the cavalier way in which Black girls are often taken into families, exploited, 24 hours a day in some cases for decades, Um, we can only understand that by understanding how race, class and gender and and notions of, of bodies and values were crystallized during the transatlantic slave trade and continue even today in Brazil. So, that, so those, are, those are some of the connections. So in terms of motivating factors, what we found, poverty, certainly, starvation were huge, um, marital dissolution and, and family, um, family strife. All of these factors would often lead to a young girl um, being sent, um, either being sent to live in another family or being um,
2: identified by a wealthier family as someone who they could help. And I was really struck by how their lives, once they got into these families, was very much about them working for the family and um, very little schooling that they were afforded.
1: No, that's exactly right. And what's interesting is that, and this is why it's so important to focus on the ways that the guise of family, the ideology of family is really mobilized as a way to create distance or to to really trivialize the exploitation that the young girls actually feel when they move into these families. So it absolutely is about labor. Um, And what I, what I refer to in the book is I talk about the reproduction, the social reproduction of inequality and, and the, the ways that black girls in particular, their bodies are used to reproduce white and wealthier families. So they're, they're considered expendable or they're, they're considered ideally used when they can be used and exploited in a way that, that perpetuates white and wealthier families in Brazil.
2: Yeah. Um, And I thought the the book um, focused a lot about like affect, emotions, and feelings. And you have this concept of affective captivity, which also kind of reverberates throughout the book. And you look at how feelings are central to the connection between these informally adopted daughters and their families, and many times in the face of significant abuse. And so you mentioned that sometimes people ask this question, like, why don't these women leave the, their families? So I, I assume like after they've sort of grown up, you found many of these adult women still attached to these families. And so um, this question might, might miss some complexity, but I thought your question of affective captivity um, helps to answer this, what keeps them connected? And so how does the affective terrain of emotion uh, keep these women you know, bound to the families that they were serving? Well, that's a great question. And essentially, and perhaps even surprisingly,
1: it ended up being, as you noted, the crux of the argument. So as a sociologist, folks are sometimes surprised that my research, both the color of love and the second-class daughters, focuses so much on emotions. But essentially, the argument I'm putting forth is that as social scientists, uh, scientists, We need to be paying attention to what I call the, the affective architecture of domination. So emotions and affects aren't simply these emotional experiences, but rather they're connected to and can help reinforce the broader social structure. So for anybody interested in understanding inequality, we have to understand that affective architecture. So affective captivity in this book really helps to expose the ways that oppressors can manipulate people who are oppressed by, by isolating them from other networks, from convincing them that, that they are better off being exploited than, than, ex, than, than with ex, uh, exploring their own freedom. The other way that it works is that because these women end up raising in some cases two, three, and four generations of of these wealthy and oftentimes white families, they develop affective ties to the children um, in the family. And because they are deprived of the opportunity to be mothers, because they typically don't have uh, sexual relationships, romantic relationships, um, the way that motherhood is valued in Brazil and the, the way that these women in particular are deprived of any other sources of connection, uh, because, because of those things, uh, de end up developing these sincere affective ties with the people who they're taking care of. But that emerges, that's actually a symptom of the level of exploitation that they're experiencing. And so being able to bring to the fore, how people can be, can make decisions as one of my respondents said, she said, I, she wanted me to explain why she was, and I quote, making decisions against myself. Uh, if we understand the affective of architecture of domination, we understand then how people who are oppressed can come to internalize uh, their roles, internalize what's considered ideal, and and act in ways that perpetuates the system, even while even while they're hurt. And even while they're disadvantaged. So, it was this book, I would argue, was all about me grappling with that affective um, architecture, with thinking through affective captivity and understanding inequality, both as a function of some of the traditional social structural indicators, um, education, uh, politics, economics. Um, all of, those, all of those aspects are important and, and are what sociologists tend to think about. I want it to bring the affective realm to the table to be able to reveal how it actually works in tandem with the social structure to ensure or to help uh, perpetuate uh, structures of domination. Now, I, I say this, and I, I feel like I, of, I often should say that this is not totalitarian in the sense that, that um, I'm not suggesting that women are... That, that this affective captivity over-determines how, how women act. I think that there's still space for agency, but that agency has to be understood within the context of this affective architecture. I hope that that makes sense. You, you tell me whether or not um, that makes sense.
2: Well, that makes perfect sense. And from my reading of the book, um, I think that you summed it up uh, very well. And you really did a beautiful job describing these emotions and, and these feelings in the book. And, you know, from the women's stories, these feelings kind of jumped off the page. So um, so I, yeah, you, you did a, a great job describing that. Um, okay, good. Um, so gifting reciprocity and favors come up repeatedly across the different chapters. And as social scientists, we know that gifts are not simply the transfer of something from one person to the other, but you know they can tie people together by compelling, like the return of the gift or or reciprocity. Um, and so, this was an aspect of your argument that I really appreciated, particularly as an anthropologist, because we learn about the gift and we we read most usually in our in our seminars. But I know that this goes you know beyond anthropology, and you really. Um, uh, use this, these ideas of gifting uh, really well in the book. And so I wondered how gifting and reciprocity play into Kriya uh, Sao or into this informal adoption.
1: So let me let me just say this is another place where work of anthropologists were so, was so important to the theorization of this. Um, the gifting was everything. So, so often once I got to, once I developed rapport with my interviewees, they talked a lot about this notion of gratidão or gratitude. And that notion of gratitude is absolutely connected to the idea of gift and reciprocity and, and morality really for that matter. So part of the ideology is that was that these informally adopted women, women criadas, should be grateful. Should be grateful that these wealthier families have provided a home and food for them, and as a result, they should be grateful for the gift that that had been given to them. And for for many of these, um, for many of these uh, respondents, this idea of gift and debt. Even more importantly, was what compelled them to stay in these situations, even when they recognized they were being exploited, because they felt that they were morally obligated to return the gift, to be, to to engage in this reciprocity by providing this lifelong service. In fact, one of my um, respondents, Angela, I remember as we sat and we 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 talked about her experience with the family, and she she said, you know, I don't think that I'll ever. I don't, ever, I'll, I don't think I'll ever pay this debt back. And so she said that to say she would always be indebted to them. Whenever they call, she needs to be there um, because of the sense of, of debt and reciprocity that was so prevalent, both for her and I think in broader Brazilian society. Now, here's the rub, and I also write about this. In terms of reciprocity, what we know is that power shapes how people are held accountable for being reciprocal. So in the same ways that there's a notion of reciprocity, when you are a high-status individual, uh, you have much more latitude to not actually uh, meet the requirements of, 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 of reciprocity. Whereas if you're a low-status individual and you depend on good relationships with higher-status individuals to survive, then you're much more compelled to, to not want to break promises and to really ensure that, um, that you're acting in ways that are reciprocal because your social standing as a lower status person, you're, you're, because your social standing as a lower status person, um, depends on you having that type of moral credibility.
2: Um, I was going to ask a question about your research methods or undertaking the research, and so you interviewed multiple women across a very long period of time. Through several follow-up interviews with with these women, and I noticed in a footnote you mentioned that many of the women reported that talking to you felt like therapy, and they they told you kind of stories of abuse and neglect and you know suffering um, that, that seemed to be you know quite disturbing. And I'll also note that I know that you did not you know represent yourself as a therapist, um, but you know that they, they knew that you know you would tell them you're doing sociological research and whatnot. But it seemed like the women, you know, really wanted to tell their stories to you. And I wondered, what was it like undertaking this research of eliciting these life stories of people whose personhood has, and lives really have just been denied and ignored for so long? I, I appreciate that question, because as much as
1: emotions are part of of the the theoretical underpinnings of this book, emotions had everything to do with the methodological process for me. Uh, It was incredibly difficult to hear these stories, to be collecting these stories, to be returning, um, because I I think I I felt torn. I felt torn in the sense that uh, I knew that I I was asking these women to talk about things that had been so traumatic that they had not yet spoken to anybody about it, for many of them as I wrote in the book they had not actually um, talked about their experiences at all. So their conversations with me um, were the first times that they had to really reflect on their experiences, moving away from the narrative of "you," they people treat me como si fosse filha da familia. So moving away from the idea that the families treat me as though I were a daughter to, to me asking them to reconcile some of the contradictions that I was seeing and hearing. And what's important to remember is that I wasn't simply collecting life histories. I think what the contribution of this book is also, is is that I was also living with some of these families. So I saw this in action. I saw the allure and the seduction of being told that you're a family member and feeling in certain moments that you are in fact a member, but yet also then uh, experiencing this differentiation within the family, and so it was it was um, it was very difficult, and I, I actually still struggle with that now, Reagan, because I still have a relationship with the women who I who I um, interviewed. So we this is over a decade. Uh, every time I went to Brazil, I would often interview these women, and so even even now we have a relationship where they continue to. Engage with me over WhatsApp, and I, I mention WhatsApp because it's important. It's an important applicate. It's an important app for women, for many of the women who can't read, because WhatsApp allows you to record your voice as opposed to having to to send text messages. So these relationships are still ongoing, and and I struggle with this. And I, I, I it was really important for me not to represent myself as a psychologist, especially because I could see. And here, the level of trauma that they were experiencing, and in fact, um, per my IRB, my Institutional Review Board protocol, I actually had to provide them with information for therapists and psychologists. That was part of my plan to protect their well-being. Um, And none none of them took me up on that offer to use the resources that I provided. But in fact, as I wrote in the book, several of them had actually spoken to therapists, and that was actually the surprising part for me. Um, some of them had spoken to therapists, but, not, but those therapists weren't asking them the types of questions that would get them to, to be more critical about their situation. They were asking them questions that, that addressed some of the individual level issues rather than some of the structural issues of exploitation and racism and sexism.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: Yeah. So you talked about earlier the idea of agency with the with these women and how your idea of affect, affective captivity doesn't fully you know foreclose the the agency that these women have over their lives. And so I wanted to ask you about chapter seven. Because in it, you discuss freedom and resistance with the informally adopted daughters, or the criadas, um, who participated in your research. And I found these to be, in some ways, kind of very satisfying stories, uh, as I was reading the book, of you know, vindication and agency. And um, I wondered how you saw, if you could uh, share with us uh, a couple ways you saw these women uh, taking back control over their lives, uh, which you provide at the end of the book. Yeah, so let let me first say, I I
1: I I really struggled with this book. This book has taken me years to write because I wanted to write it in a way that felt authentic to women's experiences. And what they would say is that at the same time that they were they they understood most of them understood that they had been victimized, they also wanted. To highlight and to acknowledge ways that they were pushing back, they they didn't want to be seen as purely victims, and and they're not that. And so, chapter seven for me was a way for me to make sure that the reader was left with a much more holistic understanding of of these women as warriors, not as as passive victims. And so, when you ask the question about how women were resisting and what are some of the examples, uh, I, I, I I want to start off by by saying that the chapter is structured in a very particular way. I knew that by the time the reader had gotten to page, that got, got, had reached chapter seven, they had seen a lot, they had read a lot. It, it's it's traumatic, I think, reading the book. And so for me, it was important to give the reader that 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 gratifying or satisfying end to know that there, there was more beyond the trauma. And I start off chapter seven talking about the examples of two women who, who literally escaped. So these are women who who were able to connect themselves with different networks, who, who used education um, and the resources that they had available to not just escape their families, but to escape their families, find success later in life, and then go back to those families that had exploited them to show them that they had actually made it. That that was for me, Regan, um, the, the stories of Katya and Gianna, um, were really gratifying and satisfying to see, to be able to tell, and for me to be able to learn. But that's not, that's not the most common trajectory. It's one trajectory, but that's not the most common. And in fact, I think the most realistic and, and most prevalent outcome was one where women figured out how to navigate what, I, I think the most compelling um, examples of resistance are the examples of how women had to navigate both coexisting in a situation where they were um, both being exploited, but trying to carve out spaces and degrees, degrees of freedom, as as I have said. So other examples. So you have examples of the women who who literally ran away. But then you also have examples of women who... um, who decide to move out from their families, but still connect, but are still connected to the informally adopted family. So Angela, for example, is able to move out of the family home, but she's still bound to them. I mentioned her before. She feels eternally indebted to them. But a way that she figures out how to navigate that is that she decides to just spend less time in the, in the family because she knows that the more that she's around, the more they're going to be likely to call her to clean and do household labor. At the same time, she strategically makes decisions about when she engages with them in order to be able to do the things with them that she wants on her terms. So she, she'll spend time with them during Carnival for, the, for a couple of days that they spend together, but then she spends time separately with the, a group of friends that she has apart from this family. Uh, she provides assistance when family members get sick, but she's also she also struggles or she also works to try to figure out how to create boundaries so that she doesn't feel as exploited. In other cases, you have women who, who have not yet left these homes. These are women who are, as of June 2022, still in these homes, and they have to figure out strategies that don't allow them to leave physically, but that allow them to navigate the situation that they're in. So in, in one case you have you have women who who talk about through the course of our interview how um, they learn how to develop their voice. So over the ten years that we are speaking in the interviews, the um, when we have these recurring meetings or follow up interviews, they talk about how they find their voice, how they start to start to say no. This is actually something that happened to me, or no, I won't provide this labor without you providing. Um, compensation. So these are these they, they these are seemingly small steps, but for these women who had never, uh, who have for a long time, for decades, not been able to advocate for themselves um, in explicit ways, what the what are seemingly these small gestures end up really being meaningful to them. Um, they also they also try to manipulate the same language of family to get the things that they want. So this is another example of how of resistance. Again, for the for the majority of Felix Dikissoun, they don't just run away. So they have to figure out how to how to best situate themselves given the situation. Nadia, uh, for example, talks about how she manipulates this language of family to con- to convince um one of her informally adopted family members to buy her this, this elaborate and fancy dress and heels and jewelry. And she uses the, the excuse that that she's the one that is called, that that is described as being like a mother. And she uses that to say, if I'm like a mother to you, then you should actually buy me these things. And, and she's successful at getting her family member uh, to do that. These are just small examples uh, of how, in the day to day, in the day to day world, these women try to try to resist. They also resist by reconceptualizing their experiences, by reframing their experiences. So this moral piece is such a critical piece to this book because we find that women um, re reframe their long-suffering, well, reframe their exploitation as long-suffering and as moral fortitude and their ability to stay in these exploitative situations as evidence of their moral righteousness. And I, 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 I'm, I'm really cautious about this because uh, in one hand, um, the, this can lead to devastating outcomes. But what I wanted to do was to be able to capture how the women themselves articulated their resistance. And that was one way that they did so is by, by working really, uh, really hard to retain as much as they could of their, what was considered their, their moral uh, fortitude.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed reading this chapter as well. and, And these stories, and I really liked the first stories that you mentioned of them going back to the families and showing them, that was successful. That was amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was, it felt, it was really great to have had those stories. Like, I, I needed those stories, Regan, in the field, because it was just, it was difficult to hear so much trauma. But I think at the same time, and this is what um, Katya says, um, Katya, who's able to, to who, who runs away and then later confronts the family. She says that people will say that she shouldn't be, um, that she shouldn't be upset. That she should be, she should express gratitude because look, she made it. She made it out. And what Katya also always says, and Katya is the sole white criada in this book, I should mention. But she says it wasn't worth it. She says I would, I would have traded anything. I would have traded to be able to live with my family, to not have been abused, even if it meant not having achieved the things that I achieved, because I, I missed. I lost something really important, which is the connection to family and to childhood and this innocence that, that, um, that she wants not to be overshadowed by people focusing on the successes that she's, that she's had, if that makes sense.
2: And in the beginning of your last answer, you were talking about wanting to write the book in a way that felt authentic to the women's lives. And I wanted to ask you about about writing, because you present these really rich stories, and they really convey the details of people's lives, and you really render these scenes with great care of you like sitting down and interviewing people or talking with people. And so I noticed two things in your writing. Um, there's, there's probably more I could say, but I, I won't. Say too much, but I, I really like reading your your work, and I've of course read *The Color of Love* and and this book, and so um, I wondered you use a lot of different references, of course, to emotion when describing these encounters. Uh, both your emotions and their emotions. And so for example, you were talking about talking to a woman, Hebekah, about her childhood and you asked her about her childhood and I think she said that she didn't have a childhood. And you write, her response left you feeling embarrassed that I had even asked the question. And so you're constantly referring to, you know your emotions throughout the text which I think links up with your idea of affect. Um, and then also I noticed in the book you have these very clever titles for these different sections. And um, for example, <clears throat> when you talk about health issues associated with these informally adopted daughters, you write that they they lack sleep, and so you call the chapter "Sleepless in Salvador" as just one example. And so I wanted, I wanted to ask you about your writing practices. Um, if you have any like tips or routines that you follow when conveying these rich stories about people's lived realities. Well, you know
1: what I well thank you thank you so much for saying that because you know I think that. Uh, and this might be uh, uncommon I think that the style is just as important as the substance and that the style can help um, highlight the substance of what we write about so I, I take great care in the way that I write so I, it's, it's always gratifying when people notice the titles and and notice the ways that I, I, I talk about emotions because it's intentional and the the reason the reason for that. if I'm completely honest, as a sociologist, I am also hugely impacted by, um, writers who are amazing. And I've written about this before. I, I, I've always imagined wanting to bring the sensibility and, and the, the wordsmithing of Toni Morrison to sociology, right? I, I I do not claim to be able to do that, but that's always what's in my mind. I grew up reading, um, Toni Morrison's novels and being completely captivated by her characters. And what I wanted to bring to to real uh, research was some of that same sensibility that really helped to capture the human experience. And to do that as a sociologist, I am convinced that I can't do that well if I'm pretending that my emotions and my experiences aren't part of this. And I think that qualitative researchers too often don't don't situate themselves in the work. And I think that this is a delicate um, navigation where we don't want to talk too much about ourselves in the book, but it is important for the the audience to understand how the author is feeling because that shapes their understandings of the relationships, of the ways that the researcher is processing the information. A a few years ago, I wrote an article called Bringing Your Whole Self to Research, and I wrote that because I wanted to capture the fact that, I, that that my emotions, in addition to emotions being the topic of research, it's valuable. It helps us if, if we're more in touch with our emotions, then we're able to do a better job at, at monitoring ourselves when sometimes the emotions can have the impact of, of inhibiting us from seeing what people are actually saying and experiencing. And let me give you an example of this. And this is a learning process. Initially, as I was meeting Filia Shikristel, I felt extremely angry. I, I was the best word I can use is just anger, anger at the level of exploitation. And I really had to temper that anger to understand the motivations that the women had for themselves, and and the understandings that the women gave to their situation. So if I had if I had let the anger Lead the work. I wouldn't have been able to look at the nuances of ways that they resisted. I wouldn't have been able to understand the affect of captivity because I would have been inclined to frame, um, to dismiss those relationships that these women have with their family members. But we can only have those sensibilities when we're honest with ourselves as researchers about what we are also experiencing emotionally, confronting that, um, monitoring that, and then being honest with the audience about about what those negotiations look like. So I I try to write Reagan, the book that I want to read. You know, Mm -hmm. I think about all the great things that I love about books. They're, they're, they're books that are emotionally, emotionally captivating, but that, that don't leave you drained, but that also allow you to feel as though you're there and you understand complex individuals. And, um, the, the creative subtitles and subsections for me is, about, is, is, is is as much about me and keeping me engaged and excited and challenged to to think more creatively about the audience as it is about making sure that the audience is uh, stays engaged with the work and invests in the real lives of the women who have spent 10 years of their life uh, speaking to me so that that I, I really appreciate you pointing that out and seeing that because it's 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 a it's a huge part of of my writing process is really uh, thinking through how I can best capture um, the totality of of, of individuals and, and let me say this if I can Reagan mm-hmm. that was that was particularly challenging for second class daughters the reason why it took so long for me to finish this book is because I also felt like I needed to protect. The identities of the women in the book, so I couldn't actually be as descriptive and and share all of what I wanted to share with the audience about these incredible women. And mm-hmm. so when I read this book, part of me, this part of me that that doesn't like to return to the book because I was not able to completely share with the audience the fullness of these women because I I, I was afraid. I I wanted to to make sure that I could protect their identities and not give anything away. And so that that took longer to tell the story in a way that, 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 um, that was more measured so that I could protect them in that way.
2: Yeah. That's so important in thinking about, um, you're right. Disclosing identity and, and, and thick description. Um, there's right. a thing that yeah, we have to balance. That's, that's really interesting. Um, So I wanted to end, I guess, with this question about your work in general. As I I said before, I've read your book, The Color of Love. I've also taught it twice in my my classes. And and then, of course, I've just read your book, Second Class Daughters. And your work can be um, kind of activating in a way because you focus on the family as a site of inequality, oppression, but also resistance um, and, and love, as you know, in the color of love. And this this disrupts many commonly held ideas about the family, which, which might be that the family is, is only a space of refuge and acceptance. And so, and I, as I said, I've taught your book and i and the students have noticed this um, in a way when they've, you know, when they've engaged with your work as well. And so I wondered, what does this work on racial dynamics and inequality in families in Brazil mean to you? Um, and is there something particularly important to you um, about this, about this topic?
1: Mm, that is a good question. And when, when I give talks about this, uh, people ask me, why is it that you are so interested in families and so invested in showing the good and the bad and, and the, the the ways that they can resist and reproduce, which is in some ways um, transgressive, as you mentioned in terms of what we typ- how we typically see families. And I think that my investment in this topic emerges in part from my relationships in my own families uh, in my own family and seeing just how vital, my family upbringing has been to who I am. I'm I'm one of six children. Uh, My mom um, had 11 siblings. We all grew up in the same place on the same street. And in fact, I now live in Tampa again, where all of my family, four generations of, of, of my family has lived. And I say that to say at the same time that I recognize how powerful, how powerfully motivating and inspirational families can be, I also saw Ways that families could be damaging, and I've always been interested in kind of pulling the curtains back on, on on these these um, notions of what these ideal institutions are like, because I've seen that that people and institutions are are just much more complex than we ever give them credit for being, and family is so powerful in terms of mobilization, in terms of organization against systems of, of domination. But I also wanted to show how these same institutions, much like anything else, when they are can can be perverted in a way that allows them to do quite the opposite. And some folks would even argue, and this is we'll have that this will be a separate conversation, that the the family of stru- the structure of family by definition, at least in our contemporary society, tends to be very patriarchal, tends to be rooted in hierarchy and power and inequality. And so I, I've always been interested in, in, in uh, unpacking and disentangling the ways that not just families, but institutions that people are emotionally attached to can have a role of both supporting them and undermining them as well. And I, I think about this, so when I think about family, I also think about nation. I think about the position, particularly of African descendants in Latin America who are often socialized to believe that they're part of the national family, although that their membership in the national family is often predicated on them being subjugated. It's, almost, it's predicated on them recognizing that they're part of the nation as long as they play a certain role, as long as they understand that they're not going to be elevated to certain positions. And so that, that, um, those contradictions are, are fascinating to me, and I think the more that we understand them, the more we can leverage institutions in ways that will allow us to, to reach our goal. And if our goal is, is more equity, more inclusion, the 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 dismantling of of structures of oppression. We have to understand how all of these institutions work and in 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 multi
2: dimensional ways. Yeah, thank you for that. That is so so important. And so we always like to end with this question of um, what what you're working on next, or if you have any upcoming projects that you're that you're thinking about beginning. Um, so what's uh, what's on the horizon for you either with work or, or with research
1: yes um, so I am working on a, a theoretical book now so I've as you've noted I've talked I've written quite a bit about emotions I'd like I'm working on a, a standalone manuscript that deals with these questions of what what I call in color of love affective capital affective captivity and this notion of the the affective architecture of domination. So I I really want to grapple with what is the theoretical contribution that I'm making uh, to the field that will allow other researchers to use similar um, apparati in their their research. So that's one piece. Um, I'm also interested in returning to Brazil. I imagine myself uh, being able to testify uh, in Congress about... um, research in my book and make recommendations for how, um, the government can, can develop better policies to be able to, to create some oversight. And again, this is not just relevant for Brazil, but it's really a problem across the diaspora. Also in parts of Africa, we see, we see, we see these practices where young girls often are are taken and exploited under the guise of family. So I'd like to translate the, the theoretical and conceptual to some concrete legislative and policy change. And and then lastly, and I mentioned this, I'm not sure if I mentioned this in the, the span of this podcast, but I've moved into administration. And Reagan, you and I talked about the fact that I, I'm in this interim vice president role
0: yeah. uh,
1: where I'm leading the DEI efforts at my university. And for me that's been an incredible experience of again translating what I've learned from a theoretical perspective about race, class, gender, the intersectionality of identities, the ways that systems of oppression work, I'm now able to be in a role where I can make recommendations connected to policies and development and training that allow us to to, to transform institutions. So I, I feel like I'm, I'm in a really great place um, to continue to do this work, to continue learning, and continue to center uh, the human experience as uh, the human experience and and the experiences of underrepresented groups, particularly Black women, um, as a as a as a guidepost moving forward.
2: Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that. That's so important. Putting research into practice in such productive ways, like actually trying to transform our social situations, which is usually the reason why so many of us go into research in the first place. Right. So um, thank you so much, Elizabeth. I have been speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Horch Freeman, the author of Second Class Daughters, Black Brazilian Women and Informal Adoption as Modern Slavery, published by Cambridge University Press. Thank you so much for writing this book, Elizabeth, and thank you for sharing it with us on the podcast. Thank
1: you so much, Reagan. And I just have to also thank you for always, for years being supportive of my research. It's been great to to be a collaborator with you and to, to work alongside of you during pretty much this entire time. So it's been a pleasure to be part of this podcast.
2: Thank you.